0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Robert Wright, the best-selling author of books including The Moral Animal, Non-Zero, and The Evolution of God. Those books covered subjects such as the evolutionary roots of human behavior, why globalization and technology have brought us positive change in our relationships and lives, and how religious belief has become increasingly tolerant over time. His new book is called Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment, and it seeks to explain why Buddhism is so valuable, both to the world and to his own life, and why its core insights reflect real truths about evolution and psychology and human beings. Robert Wright joins me now in studio. Bob, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, I should say in the interest of full disclosure that my first paid job in journalism, which was at Blogging Heads TV, which you were the founder of—
1: You realize you've just undermined the credibility of this entire conversation.
0: I didn't make enough money that I'm in any sort of debt to you, I think.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, then I may have the opposite problem. Yes, exactly.
0: Um, Well, I want to talk about many things, including your new book. And the first thing I want to ask you, just for people who may not know much about Buddhism, can you just talk a little bit about what Buddhism is and specifically the variety of Buddhism that you're talking about in this book largely?
1: Well, first of all, there's religious Buddhism, which this book isn't about. This book is about what you might call the naturalistic or secular part of Buddhism. Um, So it's not about reincarnation and it's not about prayers and so on. Um, It is about the central claim of Buddhist philosophy, uh, which is that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is because we don't see the world clearly and Buddhist practice, including meditation, can be seen as a program for seeing the world more clearly. With a title like Why Buddhism is True, you have to get clear at some point on what you mean. Um, And that's the main thing I mean when I say, uh, I mean more than that, but I I certainly mean to affirm that part of the Buddhist claim.
0: Well, it it seems like you write in the book that you wondered if there was a way to put the actual truth about human nature and the human condition into a form that would not just identify and explain the illusions we labor under, but would help us liberate ourselves from them. And so one of the the things that you're doing in the book is you're talking about these illusions and you're sort of explaining how science gives us some reason to understand why we have these illusions uh, and that Buddhism and science in this sense sort of coexist or teach us the same thing. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then I want to ask you some specifics about it.
1: Yeah, well, I had written in the past about evolutionary psychology. And one thing that struck me is that actually the human mind was not designed by natural selection to see the world clearly per se. I mean, that's not the bottom line. The bottom line is like what psychological tendencies got the genes of our ancestors into subsequent generations. Now, often doing that involves seeing the world clearly. You want to have a Pretty clear visual picture of the world generally, um, but not in all respects. So you know, if if deceiving, if, if having a mind that is deceived or that has a distorted view of things will get genes into the next generation, then distortion will be built into the mind. And so, I th- what I would think be an example been. of that? Well, you know, Buddhism makes two really radical seeming claims. When you kind of drill down on on what Buddhists mean by we don't see the world clearly. One thing they mean is that we don't see ourselves clearly at all. And in fact, Buddhism goes so far as to say uh, we're confused about the very existence of a self. There is a sense in which the self doesn't exist, which is pretty radical. And then there's also a claim about how kind of deluded we are about the world out there, that the people and the objects we see, we we tend to have a distorted uh, view of, uh, we attribute to them a kind of essence that isn't there. Um and both of these claims, you know, may sound strong, but I think there's a lot more to be said for them uh, than you might imagine. And I think evolutionary psychology explains why uh, we do suffer from these particular distortions. So,
0: so, take one about food, which you bring up in the book. Okay, well, food. Now, here we get like to- Like chocolate. Right. Yeah. So,
1: chocolate, uh, which I remain a fan of, uh, as I was before I started meditating. Um I mean, here we get to a, another of the kind of central claims of of Buddhism, very central, that in a way, you know, is related to the other things I've said about what Buddhism is, but uh, the idea that that at the root of suffering is what the Buddha in the native tongue was tanha, or like uh, thirst, craving uh, for, for not just food, but for material attainments, for status, for sex, for everything that we crave and the illusion there is that lasting gratification will ensue or even that it will endure for very long it actually tends not to right and we tend to pursue things as if they will be more deeply and enduringly gratified than they are uh, the buddha stressed uh they're that they would uh, evaporate, and I think evolutionary psychology again explains why they evaporate. I mean, and why they exist? Why are craving for chocolate? Well, sure. Why? Or- cra- you know, you have to. you have to. Have, organisms have to be motivated from natural selection's point of view, but to to do things, to nourish themselves, to do to do whatever will get genes spread, like sex. But they can't be enduringly happy with these things, or they wouldn't sit around and, and get busy you know it's a dog eat dog world out there so the 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 fleetingness of pleasure is a uh, a product of natural selection and we're and we're learning more about the brain chemistry of it and i talk a little about that but you know that's another uh example and the idea behind mindfulness meditation is your thirst your cravings and various other feelings you view you could say with greater detachment, although that's in a way misleading uh, than usual. But the idea in general with mindfulness meditation, which is the kind I focus on in the book, is to rather than be driven by your feelings, examine them and decide which feelings you, you, you think are offering good guidance and which aren't. Um, so if I really want to eat
0: you know, my second ice cream sundae of the day, y- you in the book – you don't think that the way to do that is to sort of repress it necessarily, but to sort of think about why I have that desire for it and why, in fact, it may not make me that happy to have a second ice cream. Is that correct? Well,
1: not just to think about it. And in, and in fact, I mean, I came out of my my kind of study of evolutionary psychology very aware that knowing about the the problem of human nature by itself doesn't solve the problem because the The various um because you know the the craving not just that the cravings are so strong, but that in general, feelings so subtly infiltrate our thought and our motivation that it's 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 hard to even be aware of them. So, you know, mindfulness meditation is a practice for getting better at seeing what's what's driving you and deciding. Consciously, whether you want to be driven in exactly that way, so you know that's why I, I think it's interesting that Buddhism, you know, a couple thousand years before Darwin, diagnosed the human predicament in ways that make a lot of sense in terms of evolutionary psychology, and also came up with a prescription, a program that you know it's not trivially easy to follow by any means. Then again, it's a, it's a difficult problem, but 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 a program that I I think works in a kind of pragmatic therapeutic sense, but beyond that can take you into really, I think, interesting, philosophical, and I would say spiritual uh, territory. You know, I've, I've been on like meditation retreats, a number of them where you really just do nothing but meditate all day, no contact with the outside world. And in that context, you can really go to some interesting um, places.
0: One of the things that you write about in your book, just to move off things like chocolate is anger. And you talk about why in a certain way we sometimes get pleasure from anger and, you know, some incident of road rage or something that being angry really brings us some sort of some joy, but that it's, again, it's not, it's not long lasting. And so I was wondering in your own life, how do you feel like Buddhism has helped you with anger?
1: Well, I'm as prone to rage as the next person. I, I worked for you. I, I know this. <laughs> I was actually a pretty. I was actually. I forget. Was I a very well behaved boss? I have no comment. I contend that th- there are worse bosses. Some of them occupy very high positions, even as we speak.
0: Yes, that that I would agree
1: with. But yeah, I, I'm I'm like uh, I'm, I'm I'm I'm. Well, first of all, I'm not a natural meditator. I'm not good at paying attention and focusing on things. And secondly, I need it. Uh, and this is a problem. People who need meditation most tend not to be natural at it, right? Because uh, they they don't have a lot of natural equanimity. Um, rage, I mean, first of all, rage is an interesting example because it, in a certain sense, made more sense in the environment of our evolution, a hunter-gatherer environment, than it makes now. I mean, the point of rage from from natural selection's point of view is to demonstrate that people can't mess with you. So if you disrespect me, if you try to steal my mate, whatever... I will fight you. And even if I lose the fight, I have sent a signal to the, to everyone in my social environment that, that I am willing to pay the price to make sure that people who exploit me suffer. Now, in, in a modern environment like road rage, and there actually recently was an actual death by gunshot in a road rage case... Um, it uh this makes it doesn't even make that much sense right i, I mean because because there's nobody who's ever going to see you again who's witnessing the rage there's no point at all in the demonstration of your uh resolve so it's not going to help you on
0: tinder if it, you put on your profile that you just like shot someone on the freeway either. no
1: yeah. it could be yeah there could be active downside to uh, uh beyond the beyond the risk of of getting shot um but i do think i mean one thing an evolution perspective can do is highlight The absurdity of some of our feelings and so reinforce the idea that it's worth learning how to examine them carefully uh and and cultivating the ability to not uh be driven by them should you choose not to
0: and so how has that worked for you you talk in the book about a a former colleague who um it would make you angry sometimes to think about um, or what the way that person... I was. do
1: not mention the person's name. You do not. You
0: come up with a fake name for the
1: person. I, but, I do.
0: But, but how did thinking about this person in this different way after you started meditating change the way you, you thought about him?
1: Well, I was just meditating once. This was during a retreat. And for some reason, he came to mind. And, you know, I don't have a lot of just bitter enemies. I mean, I would I would say there there are two or three people in the category I would put this person in. And uh, I was meditating, and I don't know why I started thinking of him, but just suddenly I had a very charitable view. Suddenly I was, like, imagining him as, like, a a gangly, awkward adolescent, like, not fitting in on the playground and developing uh, the various tendencies that, in my view, are not entirely commendable and, in any event, have rubbed me the wrong way. But it was just the first time I've ever thought of this person in a charitable way. And and that's some kind of testament to the kind of uh, distance you can get on your more reflexive uh, reactions to things.
0: How do you feel about anger and rage uh, in terms of people who, say, are reading the newspaper now and seeing what's going on in the world? I mean, wh- what do you think sort of the appropriate response is?
1: Very interesting question. I'm thinking about, and I may have done this by the time the podcast airs, who knows, uh, trying to get the phrase mindful resistance off the ground. Maybe, I don't know, podcast called Mindful Resistance that competes with yours or something, who knows. But, uh, but, the, but the idea, I, I personally think that the reaction to Trump uh, is excessive. I, I mean, for tactical purposes, that I don't think we realize how often... Uh, Our outrage actually feeds his base and 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 serves his goal of keeping support at least high enough that like he can't get impeached, for example. Um, And I just think in a lot of ways uh, and, and I'm as prone to this as the next person, you know, clicking clicking retweet on on something that actually doesn't have much nutritional value. Uh, but, um, well,
0: I guess I asked because I was, I was thinking about Don jr. The other day and, um, sort of trying to get in my mind to feel bad for him and thinking like, here's this guy who grew up with this insane father mm. and he's always wanted to please him and he can't, and maybe we should have sympathy for him. And, and part of me still thinks that's the way to think about these mm. things. But I also feel like this is a guy who's been in bed with these white supremacist forces on the internet. This is a guy who's going along with the pillaging of our country well there there seems something about anger that i don't want to lose even right. and and i i wonder how you if you think that's right and how you feel about that no
1: it's a real challenge i mean righteous indignation is a powerful motivator and it can be harnessed for good we just need to be mindful that our conception of what's righteous is kind of naturally warped you need to very carefully examine i think um your commitments kind of your, your, your kind of value commitments or whatever um, to make sure that you're not being led astray by the parts of human nature that tend uh, to lead us astray or that you're just not just overreacting in a counterproductive way, but, but it absolutely is a challenge. And I, I to be honest, I've known people who went so far down the meditative path that although they had the same views that they had about social justice or whatever, uh, the same views they'd ever had, um, still, they seemed a little more complacent uh, than I thought was optimal. I, I think that's an actual danger. You want to be, you know, uh, you want to think about it, but I don't think I'm anywhere near there. I, 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 I don't, I, I, my problem in general with politics and ideology is keeping my rage below the counterproductive level. I need meditation even to do that.
0: I want to ask, you talk about hatred and rage as a at a geopolitical level, too, in the book. You, you write, I'm just going to read something that you wrote from the book. At some level, it's always the same things. Human beings operating under the influence of human brains whose design presupposed their specialness. That is, human beings operating under the influence of the reality distortion fields that control us in many and subtle ways, convincing us that we and ours are in the right, that we are by nature good. And you you put forward this attitude as one of the reasons that violence happens and wars happen and so on. I, I mean, do you think – I think that there's obviously some truth to that, but don't you think that wars are, are often driven by sort of not even thinking consciously like we are in the right, but – by religious faith or by, which again is a form of thinking that we are in the right, but it's also, I wonder if it's even that when you're a true religious believer fighting a war for partially religious reasons, whether you're even thinking about it in those conscious terms that you're putting forward.
1: Well, first of all, I think, uh, you know, religious violence is just a subset of groupish violence. I mean, the key dynamics there are identifying with a group, seeing the world from its point of view and processing all information through that prism. And I think it, it goes well beyond like just, you know, the, the the kind of intuition that we're in the right. It involves processing all the information in ways that reinforce that idea. So, you know, confirmation bias is now a famous thing. Well, I think that's built into us by natural selection and it's very hard to overcome. And uh, you know, you can hear about it and then find your, I, I should say, confirmation bias and, and you know, is, is just seeing the evidence consistent with your thesis or that serves your group's uh, arguments and not seeing evidence against it. Um, and I think this happens on both sides of the kind of Trump divide right now. It's a deeply uh, human thing. And I actually think mindfulness meditation makes you somewhat more Resistant to it, in part because you become aware of the feelings that drive it. You become aware that like when you see a piece of information that's consistent with the argument you want to make, it feels good. It's almost like like uh being attracted to food or something. I mean that information feels good and and this is how subtle a level all these these controls operate at. and I think it's that level that meditation, can can help you live at and help help you, you know, it can help you discern the biases that are at that level. So it's not about like raw aggression. It's not about just, hey, I'm right and you're wrong. It's about subtle, subtle biases on perception that, that go way beyond what I've described.
0: Do you think you've gotten a better sense of why people like Trump, assuming you don't?
1: Well, three of my four siblings voted for Trump. So on the other hand, I'm pretty much avoided talking to them about it, so I don't I don't claim that, that I've gotten a lot of insight there. Uh, but I do think, I mean, you know, th- there is the natural tendency to want to demonize the people on the other side of the fight. So it is, n- it is natural and easy to say they are racist, they are stupid, and so on. Uh, and, and I just think it's more complicated than that. There are some true racists, but I think you're not serving your own cause when you succumb to the tendency uh, to demonize people in in that way, because I think, you know, if, if you're going to undermine Trump's support, you're going to need to understand what the source of that support is. And, uh, you know, that's a very practically political, pragmatically political way of looking at
0: it, though, that if we, you know, if you want Trump to lose in 2020, that you have to reach some people who voted for him, so on. But what about from a larger sense of just put it put aside the political consequences for a minute? I mean, do you think that what we need is more sympathy for people who vote in different directions and so on?
1: I, well, I mean, first, the one term I'd use is cognitive empathy. In other words, perspective taking, not necessarily feeling their pain or even caring about them, just understanding what the world looks like from their point of view. And again, I think meditation can really facilitate that. It can break down uh, your natural tendency to want to dismiss or demonize them. Now, once you do that and understand what their situation in life is and what their frustrations are, you may then uh, feel deeply that, yeah, some of these problems they face should be addressed. And uh, so, so cognitive empathy may lead to sympathy, but I think the first step is just to see the situation clearly, and our brains naturally discourage that.
0: We got sidetracked briefly. I just wanted to ask you, going back to your previous books, um, when you started writing Non-Zero, what, what what year did that book come out? 99? It came out in 2000. In 2000. So that was obviously a very different time and sort of our feelings about the internet and about globalization, and I was just wondering, separate from Buddhism issues and this book, it, are your feelings about global connectivity and the role of the internet in fostering a communal environment have they changed in the past couple of decades? And if so, how?
1: Not a lot. That book was taken as more optimistic than I meant it. Um, and in fact, when I saw that in the hardcover, I changed the paperback uh, a little bit uh, to to reinforce the fact that I was saying I wasn't saying a happy ending is assured. Yes, technology has moved us toward. Uh, global level of social organization, but a happy ending is far from assured. In some ways, information technology does tribalize this. I said that in the book. Um, and so there will be these two forces contending, um, uh, you know, tribalization and, and globalization. And uh, it, it's, you know, the, the, the jury's out. I still feel that way. I do feel that this book is part of the program. I mean, uh, mindfulness meditation is not the only way uh, to gain, uh, you know, a clearer perspective on things and and wind up interacting with people more productively. But I think it's it's a good way. I want to
0: close by talking a little bit about religion because you started you started this podcast by saying, I'm not talking about religious Buddhism per se, but when you close the book, you talk about this very subject and you ask, is the type of Buddhism I'm practicing, in fact, a religion? And so I, I was just wondering, I mean, because that's how, – how do you feel about it sitting here today? Is, is the type of Buddhism you're practicing a, a form of
1: religion? Well, it kind of – feels like that to me i mean i certainly consider it spiritual in some reasonable definitions of that term the 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 thing i say at the at the uh in that chapter about religion is you know um william james said generically religion is certainly centrally involves the idea that uh There is an unseen order and that our supreme interest lies in harmoniously adjusting ourselves to that order. And Buddhism, set aside the religious part, but just philosophical Buddhism does posit the existence of a kind of order. I mean, a couple of kinds, but one kind uh, is that there is a natural convergence between seeing the world more clearly, seeing the truth, uh, becoming happier. And becoming a better person, so uh, that's three different things, right? Clarity of vision, uh, happiness, and moral edification. Becoming a better person, and and the assertion by Buddhist philosophy is that uh, conveniently those are those are those are all the same thing. If you uh, you know if you get on the the path, uh, including a meditative path, and seriously pursue it, you will be making progress on all three fronts at least they will tend uh, to to coincide and I think that's basically true I mean there are people of great meditative attainment who are bad people that's possible but I think by and large this kind of amazing claim about the way the universe is set up that you get kind of three for one I think is true now so so there is a kind of unseen order whether whether that uh, in people who who agree that it's there would inspire, Something like religious awe, or you know, I I don't know. I mean, it, it's partly a question of how you define the terms. But for me, it's a it's an interesting and motivating thing. Have you thought more
0: since you started meditating about just the existence of God? And because I know it's a subject you've thought about and written about for a long time in your work, has is, is, is your opinion of that changed at all? Like, where are you on that? My where op- are you on that where breaking am subject? I? Yeah, could,
1: could we before we close, could we uh, settle a God question? Um, you have sixty seconds. Okay. Uh, I mean, my position has, uh, you know, is brought up Christian. I'm not a Christian. Uh, I have made the argument, it's not made in this book. And uh, when I make it, it gets me into trouble. So I don't make it that often. But I have made the argument uh, that there is some reason to suspect that there is some larger purpose unfolding through material evolution i'm not talking about anything spooky any guiding force i'm just talking about nuts and bolts natural selection and the technological evolution that it gives birth to um you could look at, at some kind of directional tendencies in those processes and say well it almost looks like there's some point to this exercise even though that doesn't necessarily mean the exercise was set in motion by a god we don't know what might have set it in motion but i think there there are grounds for for speculation but i i i Totally set that aside in, in, in this book. I, I'm really focusing on the on Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist psychology.
0: And uh, what's your current uh, meditative practice today?
1: I meditate half an hour each morning, sometimes more. Things go better when I meditate more.
0: Uh, you can feel it every day. The days you meditate,
1: yeah, I can feel. Uh, I can feel the the difference usually, um, and uh, I can definitely feel that you know if things are like i'm having trouble writing and i and and my instinct is like well why don't you go get some more food or something you know that that actually if i just sit down and meditate for 10 or 15 minutes that actually solves the problem very often and restores focus and yet oddly it's still hard to convince yourself to do that rather than go get food
0: oh well it's uh, it's a story of being a person i guess it is Bob Wright, thank you so much for joining me. The book is Why Buddhism is True, the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. One last thing for my Bay Area listeners, and I hope I have some of them because I'm recording this in the Bay Area. On September 26th, that's a Tuesday, at 7 p.m. at Books, Inc. at 601 Van Ness in San Francisco, I'm going to be hosting my former boss, Franklin Foer, who's now a writer for The Atlantic, and he's the author of a new book. It's called World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. I'm going to be interviewing him about the book. We're going to talk about tech issues. We're going to talk about journalism. We're going to talk about some of his reporting on Trump and Russia and all kinds of things. And we're going to do it right in the heart of tech world. So please join us if you can. That's a live taping of I Have to Ask on Tuesday, September 26th at Books, Inc. in San Francisco.